today's reading is from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. One, one thing I think you can, you can really guarantee about Jesus is that he, he always provokes a reaction. Um, he, always, you know, he always leaves an imprint in your mind. Uh, he will do that. That's, that's how you know you've, you've met Jesus or you've, you've understood the real Jesus, um, is if he's made a, an impact. If, 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 if he hasn't provoked a reaction in you, and he, maybe you've been sitting listening to stories about Jesus for years, um, then I would definitely question whether you've actually really met him and really understood uh, the Jesus of, of the Gospels. Uh, one, one thing that we cannot be when it comes to Jesus is, is passive and unmoved. He, 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 uh, he won't allow us to do that. And, and we see this in, in, in our text today. Um, we, we, we're going to look um, uh, at this, this situation with this, this woman who anoints Jesus. But Jesus uh, you know, shows us three things. Jesus provokes three reactions, we can say. Uh, the first reaction he provokes is extravagant devotion. The second reaction he provokes is extravagant dismissal. And the third reaction he provokes is an extravagant demonstration. All right? He provokes reactions all the time. Extravagant devotion, extravagant dismissal, and extravagant demonstration. Let's take each of those in turn. So first of all, uh, extravagant devotion. Jesus has has left the the, the temple. Uh, We've been sort of in the temple for the last few weeks now, and he's been tackling uh, the religious leaders, or they've been trying to tackle him and have not succeeded. And then last week we saw this sort of uh, prophetic judgment upon the temple and, and, and further afield as well, further into the future uh, as well. But now uh, the beginning of chapter 14 really marks the beginning of the end for Jesus. You know, he's left the temple crowds, he's on his journey towards the cross, and as we'll see over the next few weeks, he becomes increasingly um, isolated the closer he gets to the cross. And the reason for that is because it becomes increasingly painfully clear um, the, the, the cost of following Jesus is, is very high. And so by the time Jesus reaches the cross, he's all alone. Everybody's left. Um, but what we see here today um, is one of these sort of sandwiches that you get through uh, the Gospel of, of Mark. We've seen a few of them before, and he does this where there's basically two bits of bread, and in, in the middle there's the, there's the meat, you know. And, and what he's doing uh, when he does this 
technique, I suppose, as a literary technique, is he uses the two sandwich, you know, bits of bread or bookends or whatever you want to call it, um, and they sort of talk to and influence the bit that's going on in the middle. And this is one of those sandwiches that we'll see, and that will become clear as we work through the text. Um, we're going to see this uh, moment of outstanding uh, devotion to Jesus. Uh, we can see here in verses 3 through to 9 that Jesus was at this, this dinner party. Um, it was hosted in, in, in the town called Bethany, where Jesus was sort of basing himself in these days. Um, and uh, at the house, it says in verse 3, of Simon the leper. Now, we, we don't know anything more about Simon the leper, except that he had most likely leprosy. Uh, it's very unlikely that he currently has leprosy, because Jesus and his disciples would, never, you know, would not have gone in um, for a prolonged uh, dinner party. Jesus most likely either healed him or would heal him or has healed him in the past. Um, but anyway, that's the name of the guy, and um, it's his house. Uh, but in verse 3, then, we see a woman, an unnamed woman, interestingly, unnamed woman, coming in, carrying what, what uh, Mark describes as this alabaster jar full of pure nard. Nard is, um, is an ointment derived from a, um, uh, an expensive uh, flower, actually, or a root uh, that came from India, comes from India, and, um, you know, sort of distilled down and, and uh, forms this very pungent, very aromatic oil. Um, and it says there in verse 3, it was very costly, this, this ointment of pure nard, very costly. And what did she do? It says she, she broke the flask, cracked the lid off it, and poured it over Jesus' head. She's, she's anointing him with oil. Exquisite. The, the, the aroma would have filled the room where they were sat. We, we don't know much about this, this woman uh, from what Mark tells us here. Um, but we can presume that she knew Jesus somehow or other. Uh, she knew about him, or maybe she knew him personally. We don't, we don't know. Um, but, but probably she either heard him teach, uh, maybe part of the crowds, you know. She may have been healed herself one day by Jesus. Maybe she just heard uh, through word of mouth. They're in Bethany after all, which, um, according to the, the, the Gospel of John, uh, was the place where Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from death. And so for a little town like Bethany, word would get around very quickly. And so when Jesus is in town, um, you know, uh, he, he would cause a bit of a stir. But anyway, we don't know uh, how she knew Jesus, but that she knew him was pretty clear. Um, and she had this opportunity uh, because she knew he was there. Opportunity to react or respond somehow to Jesus. And so she took what she had was, was her most pre precious possession, this little alabaster jar, and she literally poured it out over his head. Alabaster, by the way, is like a sort of earthenware thing. Um, and, and, and once it's opened, you have to use the contents immediately. You can't sort of screw the lid back on and, you know, use a few drops later on. You know, pop it in your diffuser or something, you know, just to fill the air. That's not how it works. Once you've opened it, that's it. You use it straight away. Um, there's no going back. Now, we don't know how she came into the possession of this thing, which is incredibly costly. Perhaps it was an heirloom passed down. We don't know. Maybe it was uh, something given to her um, when someone died, you know, a special um, item, something like that. But it's very costly anyway. Um, and so we can see in verse 5 there that those who were with, with her uh, and in the dinner party said, well, that could have been sold. And, 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 you know, that's worth probably about 300 denarii, which in our language is probably something around 20,000 pounds, give or take. 20 grand. And she blew it, just like that. 
she used the lot in, in, in this utterly extravagant, utterly lavish act of, 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 of devotion to Jesus. You know, it's like an outflowing of her heart. And it cost her dearly, immensely, 20 grand, just like that. But she, she did what she could to express how she felt about Jesus. And Jesus affirms that in verse 6. He said, she did a beautiful thing to me. She did what she could. She used what she had to, to, to demonstrate what was going on in her heart. It reminded me, actually, when I was studying this, of, the, of the, the poor widow that we saw at the end of chapter 12. Remember, Jesus was sort of, he'd finished his ding-dongs with all the, the religious leaders, and um, they were sat there in, in the temple, in sort of opposite the temple treasury, and he saw this poor widow, as, as she was called, uh, coming with two small copper coins. Do you remember that? And she put these things in, and Jesus pointed that out, and he, he said to his disciples, that woman with her two little small copper coins has put in more than the rest of them. Because she gave all that she had. Do you remember that? Pennies. In the world's eyes, hardly anything at all. Negligible. Here we have another woman, also unnamed. And for her, it was an expensive heirloom. 20 grand on a little bottle. And yet both of these women show extravagant devotion to God. So, so it shows us that it's not about the size of the gift that's in question here, in God's eyes. It's about the shape of the heart. And her heart, in our text today, her heart was bursting. It was erupting with love. And she gave what she had, this alabaster jar. And for her, it was the highest form of praise that she could think of. It was the deepest form of devotion that she knew that she could do. And she did it. And it was astonishing. And, and those who were at the party, the onlookers, they knew the huge value that something like that could fetch on the open markets. And if anything, she sort of made herself poor as a result of, of using it on Jesus' head. But she realized that her, her devotion uh, was time-bound. Because Jesus says later on in verse 7, you, you'll always have the poor with you and, and you can serve them and bless them anytime you wish, but you won't always have me. See, what she did had a, we could say, a prophetic edge. Um, did she realize that? I, we don't know whether she realized that or not. But Jesus says she has anointed, in verse 8, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. See, her devotion was connected to the, the gospel. So just think as we look at the example of this, this woman and her extravagant devotion, think for a moment. If you were in the position where you heard Jesus was, was next door or was coming to this place, what would you reach for to bless him? Um, what would be your highest expression of praise? In other words, what, what do you have to hand? Jesus has been teaching us a few weeks ago, hasn't he? The most fundamental aspect of all religion is to love God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And here we see this woman doing exactly that. 
She was loving God totally. In that moment, it was beautiful. So my question as we, as we consider this together is, how is God calling you to express your devotion to Jesus? What has he given you? What has he placed in your, in your possession? What opportunities is he laying open for you to, 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 to express your devotion to him? He, he provokes this extravagant devotion. And it's beautiful, it's wonderful. But secondly, and we, we, we thought of this at the start, Jesus provokes extravagant dismissal. Right? He, he will provoke a reaction uh, for many, it's devotion. For others, it's dismissal. And this is the, the, the sandwich bit. This is the bread, I suppose, on either side. There's actually two forms of dismissal that we see in this text, overt and covert. Overt, first of all, is, is obvious. Um, in verses 1 and 2, you've got members of the Sanhedrin, you know, the ruling council, in, in verses 1, you know, referred to here as the chief priests and the scribes, and they're seeking to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. That's what they wanted. It's come to that. This is the climax. They, they, they wanted him dead. And it's not hard to see uh, that they are extravagantly dismissing Jesus. They'll do whatever it takes. And then in verses 10 through 11, the other bit of bread, you've got Judas Iscariot, whose name goes down in history as the one who betrays Jesus. And there he is making his decision after this extravagant show of devotion of this woman. Judas Iscariot, it says here, went off to the priests in order to betray Jesus to them. Jesus provokes extravagant dismissal. And the thing that just gets me every time is that these people are religious people. Okay, It's not the, the bad guys from outside coming in from some other country. These are the religious people of Jesus' day. It is incredible. It is desperate. These are the people who should be closest to God by every account. These are the ones who have spent their lives learning the scriptures, teaching the scriptures to the people, showing them how to live and behave in light of God's revelation. That's what they've been doing. You've even got one here who has been one of the closest to Jesus himself over three years, Judas, one of the twelve, one of the inner crowd, seeing him experiencing him, listening to his teaching. And yet he joins forces with, the, with the, 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 uh, the Sanhedrin and they want him dead. And here's a, maybe a side point, but I think it needs to be said anyway. This comes with a warning. And the warning is this. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee relationship with Jesus. Okay, you can, you can know about Jesus, you can understand theology, you can recite stuff, you can actually even look and train yourself to behave as if you know what you're talking about. But yet ultimately you, you can end up still dismissing Jesus, even with all your knowledge and your experience. I think probably one of the most desperate verses in the entire gospel is in verse 11. It says, when they heard it, when they heard the news that Judas was going to betray him, Jesus that is, they were glad, it says. They were glad. You know, in other words, they rejoiced. 
Grace, that's what that word means, grace. That's how they considered the, the good news of being able to destroy Jesus. What they wanted, whether it's Judas or the Sanhedrin, was to remove Jesus completely, to neutralize him by any means. This is the overt form of dismissal that we're seeing here. And it's ugly. And it's unjust. It's barbaric. And yet this is from religious people. And today, uh, we are, we're seeing this more and more, particularly even in the church here in the West in the 21st century. We're seeing increased animosity towards religion, but especially Christian faith. We see it. We're feeling it. I'm feeling it in, in many ways. It's small, but it's growing. Threats, complaints, lawsuits, intimidation, even spiritual opposition from people who have something to gain from churches failing. The forces of darkness. And if a church is anemic and irrelevant, then they get by just fine because they are no threat whatsoever to the world and to the, the kingdom of darkness. But if a church is, is growing, if it's filled with grace and the Holy Spirit, if it's impacting for the name of Jesus, then be ready because this overt form of opposition will come. And at the very least, it means we're doing something right if it does come. No opposition means there's something, something bad happening. This is the overt form of dismissal that, that, that we see here and will experience as we go on. But there's a covert form of dismissal here, which I think is even more subtle. Obviously, it's covert. Um, in verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Unnamed people with Jesus at the party. It could have been Judas himself and some of his pals. It could have been others in the disciples, you know, the 12, we don't know. It could have been other guests that were invited to this event. We don't know who they were. But some saw and some were indignant. What a waste, they said. What a waste of this alabaster jar. What a waste effectively putting it on him. Could have been used for the poor. Sounds pious, doesn't it? It sounds good. Um, don't neglect the poor. That's right. We believe that. The Bible teaches that. But these people weren't chiefly concerned with the poor. Um, they were playing religious games. That's what religious people do. And this game will not be playing next Sunday at the games night, by the way. It's called Playing One Virtue Off Another. And it's very clever. It's very simple. Uh, and we see it all the time. But what happens is religious people can throw the spotlight off of one issue onto another issue. And, and so therefore, the, the original problem, often a very personal one, problem with their hearts, uh, we forget and, and because we're too busy looking at this other thing over here. Uh, Jesus came across the same sort of idea in, in Mark 7, weeks, months ago when we covered Mark 7. Um, the situation there was Jesus sort of clashing with some Pharisees. Um, and uh, what the Pharisees in that situation were doing was using religious traditions, the tradition of the elders, to disobey one of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments said, honor your father and mother. And yet, you, they were using another set of rules and, 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 and circumstances to, to, to disobey that rule. And they were playing one virtue off of another. We're going to give our money to God. That, that, that money's for God. 
But Jesus says, no, no. You've, you've, you've got to honor your father and mother. Do that first. See, they were playing one virtue off of another one to get what they wanted. It's very clever. That's why it's covert. That's why it's easily missed. Anyway, the people in this scenario here at this dinner party, they were very dismissive of this woman and her act of extraordinary devotion. And rather like the overt form of extravagant dismissal, those in the dinner party also sought to minimize her devotion and neutralize it. Minimize it by scorning her, it says in verse 5. They scolded her. They told her off. What are you doing? Disaster. What a waste of money. Jesus stepped in, almost like a big brother in the school play yard. Leave her alone, he said. Why do you trouble her? Why do you think they were giving her a hard time, though, in that dinner party? What's it to them? Really, what's it to them? I think if we start to maybe peel away a few layers here and start to understand why they gave her a hard time, then we might be able to start understanding ourselves why we can give others a hard time for worship or devotion, particularly extravagant displays. So why were they giving her a hard time? Well, I think first and foremost, it was just awkward what took place when she came with her little jar and poured it over Jesus' head. Um, this was a proper setting. You know, we're, we're having a dinner party here. This sort of thing is not to happen in dinner parties. And so this outsider, this, 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 this woman of no name, came and, 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 and with this lavish and, and we presume emotional display of her devotion to Jesus. And you can just imagine those inside squirming in their seats, feeling uncomfortable, and just saying to themselves, this is very inappropriate. Honestly, why now? Why does she have to do this now? Could she, could she not have done this in the car park? You know, outside. I feel very uncomfortable. This sort of thing should not happen in dinner. It's never happened in dinner parties I've been to. But yeah, if you were sat there and, and you were reclining at table with Jesus and the rest, you couldn't miss what she did. You couldn't miss the smell, even if you chose to look away because you felt a bit weirded out on the inside. Maybe, maybe you have felt something similar to this, this level of awkwardness in, in church, in worship yourself. I know I have. Um, depending on your experience and your tradition, where, you, where, you, where you've come from. Uh, say, for example, you were brought up in a, in a, in a conservative, uh, religious background, and you find yourself, for some reason or other, in a, in a charismatic or a Pentecostal worship service. And you're there, and there's people around you waving flags and dancing and, and, and shouting and, and being expressive in their worship, maybe speaking or praying in tongues. And you're just like, oh, my goodness, what am I doing here? Who, who are the, these people? Are bonkers. And you just can't wait to get out. So awkward. Or maybe... You could flip it over and maybe you're used to that as an upbringing and you've been reared in a a charismatic or a Pentecostal sort of background. And you go to a conservative church for for one reason or another, say at Christmas or whatnot, uh, or some other service. And you're in there and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't wait to get out. These people are so stiff with their their prayers and their liturgies. And I I, I don't even know if anyone believes anything they're saying out loud. I'm so, I can't wait to get back and be with my my people. These are just examples, and maybe you have 
different experiences as well. But either way, sometimes we can feel that, can't we? We can, we can, we can seek to dismiss the, the devotion of other people because it makes us feel awkward. And we minimize it. And in our hearts, we can scold them. And that person, they're just, they're just so emotional. How can they possibly be connecting with Jesus? That person is so unemotional. How could they possibly be connecting with Jesus? We say things like this. It makes us feel awkward. The other reason why I think this happens in the text is probably even deeper. It, it reveals our own hearts. Her heart was obvious. It was open. It was loving. She did what she was able to do. She took the, the, the greatest object that she had and she gave it to Jesus. And it was stunning and it was beautiful. Um, and yet others looking on did not appreciate her act of devotion one bit. Uh, and in so doing, I think it revealed their hearts. We know her heart. And by contrast, their hearts were lacking. She was very clear where she stood before Jesus. They were partial, mediocre, maybe even a sense of cool detachment from Jesus. And that's why they didn't like what she did, because it revealed their state of devotion. So whether it's the overt form of dismissal, where we just know where they stand, they're trying to kill off and neutralize, or whether it's this more covert form that we've just been seeing towards either Jesus or to his people, those two things are actually not dissimilar at all when you boil it down. Because overt and covert forms of dismissal are only different by degree rather than substance. They both seek to minimize Jesus. They both seek to control him. They both seek to neutralize him and his people to stop them in their tracks, to remove the threats. In other words, let me be direct. You can be a churchgoer and still have the heart of one of these chief priests. What I mean is it's possible to sit in church all of our lives and still have our hearts closed to the teachings of, of Jesus. You know, the Christian faith. We can have our hearts closed to those who respond in a different way to us. Even an extravagant way to us. I'm not saying here, by the way, we all have to be the same. We all have to act in the same way or, or respond in the same way. Not at all. Not at all. God wires us all up differently to respond with different temperaments, experiences, understandings. That's part of the beauty of church, isn't it? A diversity. I'm not saying we should all be the same. Not at all. But what I am saying is that we should allow, or even more, to encourage exuberance and extravagance in whichever way that looks in one another. However it comes as we respond to Jesus and his, his amazing grace to us. So we've thought and seen that Jesus provokes this extravagant devotion from this, this woman. But yet also he provokes this extravagant dismissal and people will do whatever they can to get him out of the way. Thirdly then, finally, we see here that Jesus provokes extravagant demonstration. Why, why do you think that there are two very different responses to Jesus? Why is there no third way? Why is it extravagant devotion or extravagant dismissal? Why, why is that? Because it's the same Jesus, it's the same words, it's the same actions, 
It's the same call to follow him, to, 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 to um, you know, leave our lives and, and to uh, take up our cross, as he says, and follow him. And yet people will either end up loving Jesus or hating him. Why do you think there's two different responses? Well, it ultimately comes down to the heart, doesn't it? We either desire him or we reject him. For, for many people, Jesus is somebody uh, who's a problem. He's somebody, as we've seen, to minimize, to neutralize, or to eliminate. Or Jesus is someone that you see as the answer to your problems. He's what you really need. He's the one your heart desires the most. He's the one you should embrace. He's the one you should follow. He's the one you should be shouting from the rooftops. Why the difference? Well, the difference comes because of the gospel and what that does to you when you hear it. Uh, we've been seeing already that this woman who's anointed Jesus, um, she's anointed him, as Jesus says, beforehand for burial. We know this is the context of what she did was to prepare him for death. That's what they would have done. When, when an individual died, they would have prepared the body for burial, and part of that preparation process would have been to anoint it uh, with spices and, and ointments um, as part of their, their ritual before burial. That's what she was doing, perhaps unwittingly. Jesus is on his way to the cross. Uh, the journey begins here in chapter 14. It's called the Passion. Passion means suffering. That's where the sufferings of Christ begin, I suppose. And she, this woman, has done something very costly. It's a one-off act. She broke the flask. She poured it out over his head. She did a beautiful thing, said Jesus. But in the gospel on the cross that he eventually ends up on. Jesus did something that was infinitely costly, a one-off, history-shaping act when he gave his own life. In the gospel, his body was broken. In the gospel, his blood was poured out. He gave himself in devotion to his people, this extravagant devotion. She anointed him with oil, which as wonderful and costly as it was, will eventually fade away. Jesus anoints his people with his blood, which will never fade, never loses its power. His blood will cover you and pour over you. It will cover your sin. His blood will cover your death. His blood covers you in his life. His blood covers you in his death. His blood covers you with his perfections. His blood covers you with his righteousness, all on you. That's the gospel. And, and if you see that, and you look and you see what he has done, and you say, like he said to the woman, he has done a beautiful thing to me, then it will change your heart. Then, then it will give you a desire for Jesus. Then it will give you new desires. It will reorient your devotions away from whatever you're loving to Jesus, who is the true source and desire of our hearts. When we see how extravagantly he loved us on the cross, we will say to ourselves, he deserves my highest praise, my, my greatest devotion. The attentions of all of my heart should be on Jesus. So the question that we ask ourselves is not what can I give him, but what can I not give him? He has done this beautiful thing for me. He has given me his all. I can hold nothing back from him. 
So what is your highest expression of praise? Circling back. What do you have in your hand? I wonder, I wonder how the Holy Spirit is calling you to act, to show Jesus your devotion. Let me finish by uh, applying this to three realms where this might um, be uh, something that the Holy Spirit is directing you to. First of all, in the realm of gathered worship, what we do here when we come together, might be that for you, you are being called to, to discover extravagance in worship, uh, increased freedom as we gather to sing, to move, to, to respond somehow released to exercise the gifts of the Spirit, perhaps speaking in tongues or singing in tongues or prophecy or something like that. For you, it might be an emotional response that you previously didn't feel like you could have in church. You thought you'd better button it down. Perhaps Jesus, uh, through the Spirit, is just drawing out of you weeping or laughing or praising, or, or shouting with, with words, amens. Extravagance in gathered worship, perhaps. Maybe extravagance in private worship. You see, your extravagant devotion to Jesus needn't be public. Most often it's not. This woman had one opportunity to, to, to do this, to, to show her devotion, just happened to take place at a dinner party. The thing that made her extravagance special was not that it was done in public, it was not the spectacle. It was the heart that went behind it. So our acts of extravagance needn't be something that we do in public. Needn't be known to anyone but God. So for you, your, your private worship might mean a hidden and devoted and a costly giving of some resource or other. It might mean for you going over and above your ordinary tithes. For example, your regular giving. And using your money in an extravagant way somehow or other. I'm not saying foolish. I'm saying extravagant. There is a difference. It might be for you planning regular days, uh, seasons even, of fasting, of solitude, of, of retreat, uh, of doing something you've never done before in order to uh, go deeper and, and further in your relationship with Jesus. It could be gathered. It could be private. What is the highest form of praise? What is the Holy Spirit calling you to act upon? Third realm, final realm, might be your life trajectory. It might be that the Holy Spirit is calling you to make certain life-changing decisions so that you can radically respond in devotion to Jesus, to perhaps serve him in a brand new context, for example, to help plant a church in a new area, for example, to swap vocations, for example, to go wherever God leads you by his Holy Spirit, to, to pursue a big God-given vision. Maybe God is calling you. That's your act of devotion. He provokes extravagant devotion. He provokes extravagant dismissal. But through the gospel, he shows extravagant demonstration how will you respond let's pray